0: Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show.
1: This is Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm your host, George Ackla joined alongside also host Patrick Scott. And for the astute listeners, for those who tune in every week, for the 10 of you guys, you might remember that we were supposed to have a crypto episode this week. I even went so far to say last week that it was a for sure thing. Well, that was before I booked our guest, and our, our guest had other arrangements that week, which means that our crypto episode is actually going to be next week. However, this means we, in theory, have an extra week to prepare, so it, it should be twice as good.
0: Yeah, we'll take our promises with a grain of salt because so far we've got a 0% success rate with them, but we, we will do our best to get them on because we're excited about it.
1: And Patrick Scott there with his uh, pessimistic take, like always. Nuggets of wisdom. Speaking of pessimistic, we got a a few pessimistic uh, tidbits today. Patrick is going to be, as always, you like to talk about the tech bubble crashes, Lehman Brothers crash. What other crashes? I feel like you're always negative. There's a theme here, yeah. And today is no different. We're going to be talking about Black Monday. Uh, of 1987. But as we get started today, there actually was a story that caught my attention this week. And I don't know why it hadn't earlier, because it's not really like it's a new development. But I guess I didn't realize the enormity of the situation. So today we're going to be talking about some new SEC regulations. And I can already see Patrick starting to doze off, thinking this is going to be me reading from Section 7.116, about I don't know whatever whatever trading regulations we're going to talk about, but it's it actually means a lot to the retail investor. Some institutions are actually worried about um, these regulations as well. So the first of these regulations. Admittedly, on the surface, sounds really good. But I'm skeptical about its ultimate effect. So we're going to start with a story, and, and that'll bring us into, I guess, our further story about this regulation. Patrick, you're the vice president of a company, you've worked your way up the corporate ladder, and you're vice president in a company that earns $900 million a year of gross revenue. In your contract, it states that you are to be paid one one-millionth of the company's gross revenue. With that in mind, you would make how much money? One one-millionth of $900 million.
0: Okay, one one over a million is a fraction? That would be 900 right?
1: Yep, you'd make $900. However, let's say that it comes to be known, by no fault of your own though, that a few months later the revenues were actually $800 million. There was some reporting inaccuracies, things weren't lining up the way... They thought they had. It's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but your actual gross revenue was 800 million dollars. Under the new proposed SEC regulation, you would be legally obligated to give back 100 dollars to the company because, right, you only benefited the company with the 800 million dollars of gross revenue. You should only be compensated for for the performance that you actually achieved. You didn't achieve 900 million. You only achieved 800 million. You should be rightfully compensated for that. It seems simple. I, right. in in my opinion, when I first read that.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, it seems simple to me too.
1: And there's a lot of good to it. You, you don't have incentive pressure accounting departments or, you know, auditors to overstate stuff. I think that's generally a good thing. However, salaries and non-incentive-based compensation are not subject to these rules. So if you're getting paid $100,000 a year and this same thing happens. You're still going to make a $100,000 a year no matter what. And as investors, we generally like incentive-based compensation pack. We want people to be rewarded for doing a good job.
0: Okay. Yeah, of course.
1: It's unlikely though that corporate heads or people people in charge are going to want to take a pay cut or even have to worry about if accounting gets something wrong, that their bonuses are going to be less. So what they're worried is that salaries are going to go up. Incentive-based compensation is going to go down. And that as a whole is going to be bad for the company because there's less incentive incentive for people to make money for us, the investors.
0: And so less investorship overall then, less investment?
1: Yeah, the, the, the people running the company are less invested
0: in their own company. Oh, okay. Does that change the way that common retail investor looks at it? Like, would they want to, I guess, take their money out of it if there wasn't so much incentive?
1: I think for for regulation like this, it on a smaller scale, it's not that. However, if it ever comes to the point where people are normally getting $2 million of stock-based compensation every year, and that changes so they're only getting a hundred thousand dollars of stock-based compensation. If the stock price goes down, they really don't care. That doesn't affect them personally a lot. Whereas if they have a lot of money invested in the company or based on stock-based compensation, they really want to make sure the stock price is going up, not just in the short term, but the long-term appreciation. A lot of it is just speculation right now, but I think overall, it, it's something to monitor in the long-term. As, as an investor, we, we want to make sure that People who are leading the company do better when they're company. Another regulation likely soon to be imposed relates to a new cybersecurity governance requirement. It's actually, in my opinion, somewhat surprising that we haven't seen a lot of this from the SEC, just based on how technology has permeated pretty much all industries and all companies. Basically, within four days of a quote-unquote material cybersecurity incident, a company has to file a form to... Form investors. They they have to make sure investors know what's going on, that there has been a, a cybersecurity threat, a material one. Now, there's been a lot more debate regarding what constitutes material. And actually, the U.S. Supreme Court got involved. The SEC needed them to define it for them. And they said that it should be disclosed. A reasonable investor is having significantly altered the total mix of information made available. Here's the problem with this. Say you're PayPal and you've had a lot of customer information leaked or there's been some cybersecurity threat that that threatens your business. If you have to disclose that within four days, that gives hackers the chance to know where the situation stands, and how much of it you've gotten under control. Because part of the reporting is, you have to report when the incident was discovered, a description of the nature and the scope of the incident, whether any data was stolen, altered, or accessed, the effect of the incident, and whether the company has done anything to resolve the incident. Which just seems like, if you're a hacker, you're going to be looking for those reports and saying, okay, what do they know that I've hacked? How close are they to resolving it? And what more can I exploit from this based on what they know? And a lot of companies who rely on cybersecurity are, are concerned that if they have to disclose it within four days and they have IT working around the clock to fix the problem, investors would rather have it that IT resolves it within a week to out anyone knowing versus the whole world knowing yeah. the problems that a company is having. I don't know what your thoughts are on this.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, because if it got resolved and no one knew about it, then it wouldn't have any effect whatsoever. But within four days, if there was all of a sudden this um, sort of information uh, announced that there was a cybersecurity hack, then that will plummet the stock.
1: Yeah. And even if it doesn't plummet the stock, you know, there's a real risk that people are going to take advantage of what they know. and potentially make the crisis worse. When a
0: company gets hacked, what what, what is a hacker hacker looking for, I guess? A
1: lot of times what hackers do is they gather a lot of data. And in the case of, say, a ransomware attack, they'll say, give us $100 million or we're either going to release all this public or destroy your network. We can basically delete all the work, delete all customer data. Okay, yeah,
0: the, the ransomware um, illustration.
1: Now, Patrick, have you heard about ESG and what that really means?
0: Uh, no, I don't know what ESG is.
1: ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance, and essentially ESG is very worried about things such as climate change or racial relations within businesses or what percent of the governing body is women or transgender or, or those sorts of things.
0: That's what the Environmental Social government Governance yeah, so, is? Okay.
1: Yep, and Essentially, the European Union wants to make these companies disclose a lot of information about that under the assumption that companies that are more environmentally friendly are, are going to do better and investors don't. Investors deserve to know whether an oil company is doing really bad on the on the pollution front, releasing a lot of emissions, or whether they're they're not allowing women on the board of directors, that sort of thing. They think that a comprehensive report needs to be filed with that.
0: Releasing a lot of Emissions,
1: admissions, <laughs> emissions, tomato, tomato, and I think for a lot of investors, more information is better. So people aren't necessarily opposed to the information part. The concern is at what expense is this coming? For example, one of the regulations for pollution reporting is companies quote must set out policies, targets, and resource allocation. Affecting pollution of air, water, soil, living organisms, and food resources, among others. The report must detail the pollutants generated or used during the production processes and that leave facilities as emissions products or as part of products or services. There's a lot to unpack there, but we'll have to um, measure the amount of emissions they're emitting into the environment. And this is very costly. They have to devote resources to measuring emissions. They have to devote resources to m- measure from their water treatment plant what are they releasing back into the environment. Okay.
0: So the SEC is ordering the companies to spend their own money um, to research these things and get this data.
1: And one thing to get straight is this is not the SEC. This is in the European Union. Oh, okay. But even still, I'm glad you you brought that up. That segues really well because 10% of U.S. companies are listed in the European Union, meaning that they will be forced to adopt all of the regulations. And then the companies that maybe aren't listed but still sell things in the European Union are still going to be regulated by some of these regulations. And don't underestimate the European Union's influence. I know you're a big Apple fan. Did you know that they were going to switch to the Type-C charger for the next year's Apple iPhone?
0: From now on, I, isn't it the US, like the one they have been using for the past few years? I know they did kind of switch, but um, is that something they're about to start doing?
1: Starting in 2023, all their phones, I think they switched like iPads and different okay. things, but for yeah. all of their iPhones... They have to switch the cable, and they made this decision because the European Union mandated that all phones sold in Europe had to be with a USB-C. And just with the expense of manufacturing processes and stuff, it didn't make sense to make phones with two different cables. So they're standardizing their phones to all have the USB-C, which isn't a small number. Approximately 250 million iPhones are, are purchased every year and produced every year by apple
0: okay yeah that is a big deal
1: so right now it is a european union issue but a lot of companies u.s based companies who do business in europe they're going to be affected by this this could hit their bottom line and we're not really sure exactly what these reporting standards are but if they require a very strict measuring of things like pollutants it would not be insignificant and last but not least is a proposal to help with transparency in the marketplace right now when you purchase shares with accounts do you know what happens When when you buy a share with Robinhood. Do you know what happens?
0: Um, they take a commission from it. But how do you actually buy the stock? Um, well, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't used Robinhood. Um,
1: well, I guess just any trading platform. How like how do you how do you buy the stock? Like wh- how how does it turn from money to okay. stock in your account?
0: How does it turn from money into stock? Okay, so I'll I'll search up a company that I want to buy, and then. I click on it, and it says buy. I click buy one share, and then it says uh, trade will execute shortly. Is that what you're looking for?
1: I think you're like most people, Patrick. We don't really understand what the mechanics behind it, how money becomes shares. What actually happens is when you buy shares on Robinhood, it gets sent to a place. I think a lot of the centers are in New York, but they might have like data centers elsewhere. But it's actually owned by a company. They're the market maker. The big one is Citadel. They get buy orders and sell orders, and, and... they're responsible for making sure those are fulfilled. So you're sending a buy order from Robin Hood. Maybe I'm sending a sell order from Charles Schwab and those two get put together. Not all companies will use Citadel, but they are the major or a major market maker. Under the proposed regulation, it would be like a big auction house. So you wouldn't have to use a private company. It would somewhat eliminate the middleman and make it one big auction so you know you're getting the best price there's a concern that companies like citadel they make more money if they if i'm willing to sell it my share for two hundred dollars and you're willing to buy it for two hundred five dollars they can make a lot of money if they charge you two five and they give me two hundred dollars now there's not a lot of evidence that's what they do and if they do it's on a much smaller scale than that but They're considering implementing like a bigger auction house where all the transactions are visible. In addition, the SEC has proposed trades down to one-tenth of a cent. Instead of buying GameStop for $25, you can now buy GameStop for... $24.99 $24.99 and, and one-tenth of a cent.
0: Isn't that kind of like what you see on like the gas price signs as well?
1: Yeah, I guess that's an interesting way of of looking at it, yeah. And it's interesting because we talked about in, our I think, our first episode, or the Warren Buffett episode, how it used to be in traded an eighth of a, of a dollar. What it is currently is a hundredth of a dollar or one cent, and now it's going to be a thousandth of a dollar, potentially. A lot of people aren't very keen on this. It, it's very vague. They claim that, places like citadel like i said consider all available markets when executing trades they today use algorithms that are designed to get the best possible price and they monitor the execution of trades and take steps to address any problems people are also wondering how big of an expense this would be The the infrastructure is already in place to do it relatively well there hasn't been a problem people are saying why fix it for most people even if they're losing a few cents on every trade with thousands of shares. Why are we going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars to make a big transparent auction? People are just wondering why, why that needs to be a thing. Now, it's interesting that we're talking about um, some SEC regulations because your story, Patrick, actually led to a lot of changes in what we know for trading today. So i will let you talk about Black Monday. All
0: right. So Black Monday. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, we hope you remember that from our previous episode. It's an index um, that pretty Pretty much charts the stock market as a whole. Um, so it had tremendous growth in the years leading up to October 9th, 1987. It experienced about 70% growth in five years until August. Part of this was due to the economic restoration after the recession that happened in the early 1980s, and uh, inflation dropped, and the U.S. Uh, switched its strategy from rapid recovery from the recession to a slow expansion. And so five days before October 19th, a tax bill was introduced to reduce tax benefits for certain circumstances. On the same day, the Department of Commerce announced unexpectedly high trade deficit figures. So George, high trade deficit figures, what, what are these and what do they do? There's a
1: concern with trade deficits that it does destroy jobs in America. And this was at a point before it was as international U.S. companies were more U.S. based than now they, they're more international. And there was a concern that by importing so much and not exporting as much, that was bad for U.S.-based companies.
0: Okay, so the Dow dropped over 10% um, in the days leading up to the 19th. So because of those losses, there was built-up pressure to sell once the stock market opened that morning for the investors. And this is not just for like one company or industry specifically, but uh, I think it really was just the market as a whole. And this heavy selling also triggered algorithmic um, automated selling, which was a really uh, a, a relatively new phenomenon on at at the time. And the volume of shares attempting to be traded at Merrill Lynch, for example, uh, which was one of the major market makers, um, surged from its average of 100 to 200 million shares to over 600 million shares. So the selling was so heavy that it caused uh, sell halts and delays, um, and the masses of sell orders, uh, it was just overwhelming. So George, why was this a problem? Why couldn't they just be executed online instantly like we have today? Do Wall Street employees still have to manually approve trades or something? something?
1: At the time, they didn't have to manually approve trades even then. The problem was is that there was so much volume that hadn't been dealt with before. It's like if there's a pipe that's supposed to carry water and there's so much that's trying to flow through it at one time, like all these orders, it just can't carry it through all the time.
0: So George, if a trade delay happens, is the stock ultimately sold at the price that you wanted to sell it at or at the price post delay? It's the
1: price post delay. And a lot of people were scrambling sell, they saw that other people's trades weren't being executed right away. As we mentioned, there just wasn't enough capacity or enough power to execute these trades. And people got scared saying, oh, their trade isn't executing. I got to get my my spot in line. So when trading finally resumes, I can get a better price than if I were to wait.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if the the stock is going down and I put in a sell order um, when it's at like $100 and then there's a delay, it might go down to like 60 in that time, and then it'll just automatically sell it at 60. And what if, like, what if I didn't want to sell it at 60? What if that's just too much of a loss for me to take then? Yeah, I can see why people would be upset here in this situation.
1: And the problem is, is there also needs to be buyers and sellers matched. And on this day, there was just so much confusion and panic that nobody wanted to buy stock. And because of this, things were just going down like crazy.
0: So is that what happens with every single trade? Is that why it's called a trade? Because if you sell a, a stock, it is it goes directly to a buyer?
1: Yeah, every every time you sell a stock, it has to go to a buyer. In some cases, it's going to be an institution like Citadel, who will buy it from you and say, okay, we'll just have these in reserves. You could sell it back to a company. Maybe you own a share of Whirlpool and Whirlpool wants some treasury stock, as, as we call it. They want to own more of themselves, have a larger piece of the pie. But yeah, every time you sell, there has to be a buyer on the other side. And if every time you buy, there has to be a seller on the other side.
0: OK, good to know. So on that day, uh, Black Monday had dropped 22.6 uh, percent, which was and remains the largest single day drop in the Dow's history. So what are the effects, the fallout from this? So the Federal Reserve uh, began acting as the lender of last resort shortly after. So, George, what's the lender of last resort?
1: It's more of the idea that no one else was going to lend these banks and these companies money as they were just really concerned. There was a lot of uncertainty and the Federal Reserve stepped in and said, we're going to be the stability that the economy and the, and the trading platforms need right now, and we're going to lend you the money no matter what.
0: Okay, so to stimulate the economy, the Fed injected $17 billion into the banking system the day after the crash. Uh, that was more than... of the bank reserve balance and 7% of the monetary base of the entire nation. And the Fed also tried to uh, sway the banks into loaning. So, George, what effect would that have?
1: The Fed is just trying to get security back into the system, get people confident. And if the banks are investing in securities the retail investors, other people are going to be more confident to invest in the stock market and essentially the U.S. economy because the stock market comprises a large part of the U.S. economy or at least represents it. Okay,
0: so shortly after the SEC implemented circuit breakers, meaning that trading halts after certain levels of sell-offs. It gives traders the opportunity to readjust algorithms uh, and fix any, any bugs. So what are the lessons learned from this? To me, there seems to be a factor of randomness to the stock market. It's almost as if there are hundreds of ways I guess going in different directions simultaneously and every now and then a bunch of waves will go in the same direction Yielding a flood or a tsunami and the economic changes made that led to the drop were nothing too major And after all this was a bigger one-day drop than any other day And there are some days with much larger events than Black Monday for example like 9-11 uh, tech bubble Great Recession, they all had sharp uh, declines, um, even though the tech bubble and Great Recession didn't all happen on one day um, like 9-11 did or Black Monday. Uh, So people are still trying to track these different economic patterns, these different waves. But so far, they are all just theories. So George, do you have any other lessons learned or comments on mine?
1: Yeah, a lot of it, like we mentioned before, was computers were relatively new. We became very reliant on that. And I think it's just funny. I I think as investors, we think that the markets are perfectly smart and everyone acts really rationally. And I think 99% of the time, people do act very rationally and do, do smart things. But in the case of this day, professional traders were legitimately scrambling to drop all their positions. Like people were just very terrified of something that was just a passing craze. And it's important to remember that before you start to panic, understand why you're going to panic.
0: Good to know. All right, well, with that, I think we will end the show for today. We want to thank you all for listening. To uh, Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM and we'd love for you to join us once again uh, we're trying to look forward to our cryptocurrency episode so we'd love for you to join us